Now, because Revelation 17 and 18 are really two parts of this parenthetic break between the final seventh bowl judgment recorded at the end of chapter 16 and the second coming of Jesus presented in the middle part of chapter 19, it's worth just here at the beginning a quick recap of what John is referring to when he mentions the judgment of that great city, Babylon. Historically, we know that ancient Babylon possessed a significant place on the world stage. And yet, for the last 2,000 years, it's just simply a reality that the city of Babylon has laid in ruin. While it's entirely possible that in this future end-time scenario, Babylon will once again rise from the ashes to dominate the, the world stage. It's more, like, it's more likely that John here, um, in these two chapters, is employing figurative language in presenting Babylon the Great in chapter 17 as being the mother of all harlots, riding upon this scarlet beast. John is illustrating this fallen, satanically conceived, secular moral system that has always facilitated man in his attempt to build a life for himself apart from God. In this chapter we'll look at this morning, John is now going to present Babylon as being a great city so that he can describe her destruction and the world's reaction. Again, while this chapter may indeed document the judgment of an actual port city, centered, central to the global stage, the global order, I lean towards this all being a literary technique whereby John is articulating God's judgment of something much greater than an actual physical literal city. As I noted last Sunday, it is vitally important that you see what John is referencing using this term Babylon the Great as being intentionally broad and nonspecific. In discussing the judgment of religious Babylon recorded in Revelation 17, it's clear that John is not describing uh, some form or a perversion of Roman Catholicism, but he's describing this worldly system, a worldly system of morality, apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's very broad, intentionally so. And as we look at the judgment of this wicked city in chapter 18, it's important you avoid narrowing the interpretation to only one institution. Now before we dive into the text, I do need to establish an idea, a big idea, that will aid in your understanding of this chapter. Because John uses the same term, Babylon the Great, in both Revelation 17 and 18, we can safely say that he's referencing two things that are absolutely, intrinsically linked to one another. Th think of them as being kind of two sides of the same coin. And yet, as we work our way through the text, you will notice that the system of Babylon being judged in this chapter, chapter 18, is much different, distinctly so, than what we saw in chapter 17. A great example of this contrast is the way in which Babylon is judged in the previous chapter as opposed to the way she'll be judged in this one. Concerning the moral system, antithetical to God, Babylon proved to be her own undoing. Secular humanism, 
the, the moral structure that exalts man in the place of God will give way to some twisted version of monotheism. The worship of one man, his name being the Antichrist. Babylon, in chapter 17, will be destroyed by the very beast it rode upon. And yet, regarding the city of Babylon, being described in this chapter, in verse 8, we'll read, Therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. It's evident this secondary manifestation of Babylon will be brought to ruin, not by herself or the Antichrist, but by the very hand of the Lord God Almighty. Now, in order to understand the interesting connection, as well as distinction of these two expressions of Babylon, think back to the first mention of Babel, all the way back in Genesis chapter 11. You see, in this scenario, the law of first mention, whereby the descendants of Noah decided to rebel against the commands of God to spread out and fill the earth following the flood, we discover in that story two distinct characteristics. Initially, there was this moral framework introduced by a version of the Antichrist, a man named Nimrod, that did seek to exalt man into a position where he was no longer in need of God. We read in Genesis where they declare, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And yet, as the story unfolds, it was the moral framework which then practically manifested into this creation of a brand new society. We read that they built for themselves a city with a tower whose top was in the heavens. Culturally speaking, what we find here is a universal pattern that has remained consistent throughout all ages. Moral systems create the foundation upon which societies end up being formed. Let me provide you several examples as to how this works to illustrate the point. Hitler's socialist pursuit of a Third Reich, it was based on Darwinistic ideas concerning human value and worth. Again, a moral system creating the foundation for a society. Like, understand that the Holocaust ends up being nothing more than the logical result of the idea of survival of the fittest, central to the theory of evolution. Stalin's communist revolution in Russia, Mao's in China, or Fidel's in Cuba, were all born from Marxist concepts concerning how society might best fulfill basic human needs and define the benefits of work in place of any type of theistic influences regarding man. Societies like ancient Egypt, the Aztecs, or more recently seen in imperial Japan, or North Korea, or, or Iran, they were established entirely based upon the deification of a supreme leader. Again, moral system, bedrock for society. In similar fashion, the Ming Dynasty, the early days of the British Empire, Vatican City, or present-day Saudi Arabia are all societies driven by the wishes of an absolute monarch. Even democracies require certain basic 
moral foundations to exist. For example, in the West, democratic ideas were originally born largely from a Judeo-Christian ethic. In fact, one can argue that democracy can only exist within this particular theological framework, which explains, by the way, why so many of our current freedoms are under assault. You see, it's only natural as our moral systems move away from Christian principles, so will our system of governance. If you think that I'm kind of taking that a bit to an extreme, like this whole idea is why nations that move further and further away from a core belief in God become in turn more communistic, socialist, or even nationalistic as the state, or in some other instances, a charismatic leader, fills the role of being the supreme you know, moral-giving authority. It's also why uh, nation-building as being a geopolitical strategy is, is and has been a terrible idea. Like It's simply a reality that countries that do not possess a Judeo-Christian worldview eventually fail to adopt any type of democratic form of governance. Like the progress of India has been dramatically hampered by the Hindu caste system. Beyond this, the theological tenets core to Islam have made it virtually impossible for democratic liberties and freedoms to take root in places like Afghanistan or Iraq. Again, all societies are built upon moral systems, which is why a broad interpretation of what some refer to as economic Babylon is so helpful. No matter the particular era or specific culture, nation, or commercial system, it is always the spirit of Babylon, this moral system opposed to God, that creates the city of Babylon, the pursuit of some type of societal utopia apart from the influence of the divine. Not only do these things always end up failing, but as we're going to see this morning, they will all be brought to ruin through the judgment of God. Let's dive into the text, Revelation 18, beginning with verse 1. John says, after these things, or after the destruction of religious Babylon, when the Antichrist takes the reins and declares himself to be God, after these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Back in the parenthetic break of Revelation 14, a break situated between the last trumpet judgment and the first of the bold judgments, John records for us three angelic proclamations to all of the earth that occur towards the end of this seven-year tribulational period. The first angel was sent to declare, we're told, the everlasting gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The third 
would be sent to provide humanity a stark warning as to the eternal consequences for anyone that would have taken the mark of the beast. Between these two pronouncements, though, John records this second angel flying through the midst of heaven, declaring for all to hear, Babylon has fallen, has fallen that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. It would appear that Revelation 18 opens with John returning back to Revelation 14, verse 8, in order to give us more details on what the angel said, as well as to explain what the ultimate judgment of this Babylon would practically look like. I mentioned in our commentary of chapter 14 that this phrase, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, is likely better translated in the active tense being Babylon is falling, is falling. In context, the angel was warning the world not to place her trust in a system, a worldly system that was in the process of of being destroyed. To this point, in verse 8, we'll read that this voice comes from heaven, declaring, quote, therefore, her plagues will come in one day. Will come in one day. You see, this lends to the idea that this angelic proclamation was predictive. Now, by the close of the chapter, we are going to witness the fruition of this angelic warning. When society, the society that this city of Babylon represents, is eventually wiped clean from the face of the earth. Now, as for the timing of this judgment, in his record of the last and final, the seventh bold judgment, John writes in Revelation 16, verse 19, he says, And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. I think it's safe for us to assume that Babylon's ultimate judgment, and therefore what we have recorded in this chapter, happens at the very end of the tribulational period. With regards to this final societal manifestation of this moral system created only to be commandeered and dominated by the Antichrist, look back at some characteristics of this society presented for us in verses 2 and 3. The angel declares that the city of Babylon, this system, this culture, had become a dwelling place. It had been occupied by demons, category one. It was also a, a prison for every foul spirit, category two. And it was a cage for every unclean and hated bird. There is no doubt that this worldly society had grown starkly wicked depraved this society had embraced what is evil instead of the instead of what's good they had become demonically influenced some of that was on display the other night with the grammys additionally the angel adds that quote all the nations had drunk of the wine of her wrath of her fornication the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but the language being used here, all the nations, the kings of the earth, the merchants of the earth, all of this language is used to describe something that's global, a global system, and not a specific city. 
While this final worldly society, born from this moral framework, co-opted by the Antichrist, will be incredibly profane, grotesque. She will also, though, be immensely wealthy. Materialism will flourish. The riches of men will abound. Most interestingly, this Greek word we have, the abundance of her luxury, luxury. This word literally refers to an excessive strength longing to break forth. You see, men will pursue an eager desire that will never actually be fulfilled or met. The word luxury can be translated into English as wantonness or delicacy. Verse 4, And I heard another voice from heaven. Now, as we'll see, this is likely the voice of Jesus. And the reason we, we, we conclude that is look at what the voice said. The voice was saying, Come out of her, my people lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive her plagues. Now, we'll leave our commentary of this verse to the end of our study. The reason to come out for her sins, we're told, have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. On account of her sin, her iniquities, Jesus says God will render to her just as she has rendered to you, and will repay her double according to her work. So we have this Levitical law of restitution being at work double portion and the cut which she has mixed mixed double for her and the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously and the same measure give her torment and sorrow for she says in her heart i sit as a queen i am no widow i will not see sorrow you see not only will god judge the world according to her crimes but the manner of justice will be articulated consistent with his word again the double restoration laid out in the law Aside from that, you can't help but also notice the world's pride here. Like there's this incredible arrogance yielded from this false sense of security brought on by her wealth. Verse 8, therefore, as a consequence of these things, her plagues, or literally her judgments, will come in one day, we're told, death and mourning and famine. These things will result. And she will be utterly burned with fire for strong, we're told, is the Lord God who judges her. Keep in mind, the description being provided in this text is not an economic collapse like we've seen in the past or some type of stock market crash. Instead, Jesus is saying here that the judgment of the world will be swift, complete, and total. And one day, everything that this world holds dear. Everything this world takes pride in, everything mankind has built for himself, everything she finds security in, comfort in, will be destroyed and brought to ruin. Imagine, really, such a scenario whereby the markets are gone and the bedrock of the global economy is completely demoed. It's demolished. It no longer exists. Businesses, portfolios, investment accounts, retirement funds, even money will become obsolete. With every city being brought to, to rubble, islands sinking, mountains flat, flattened, it's hard to imagine real estate being a safe hedge at this point. As we'll see in verses 12 and 13, 
even material possessions won't matter at all. Contrary to what William Devane says, not even gold or silver will be able to protect your wealth. My guess is by this point, even Tom Selleck will give up peddling reverse mortgages to seniors. Jesus says, in one day, like that, this entire world system, this entire economy built by man will be destroyed and utterly burned with fire, making, if we're being honest, any security found in such things appearing to be foolish. And notice the world's reaction to this judgment. Verse 9, The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her. And when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, they'll say, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. People will be shocked by just how fast this judgment comes. Continuing, and the merchants of the earth, they'll weep and mourn over her. Why? For no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood and bronze and iron and marble, and cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and bodies and souls of men. You know, in response to the sixth seal judgment, John writes in Revelation 6, verse 15, he says how every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. In fact, the existence of slavery, of slaves, during this tribulational period will again be confirmed in Revelation 19, verse 18. And while it might be difficult from kind of our progressive modern uh, perspective, our, our vantage point, to conceive of a future scenario where slavery, the enslavement of people, is once again accepted and normalized. It's worth pointing out that our modern belief or notion that the majority of our current society is actually somehow free, it's comical. Like how many people in our present commercial system are really free, really work for themselves. Most, and maybe you'll find this relatable, most work a nine to five, a job that they hate, doing a task that they see as being uninspiring for a boss they resent and with people they despise so that a corporation can become enriched and they do all this for a check, a check that's insufficient to cover their necessities, pay the person who's raising their children, and get out from under the debt of a student loan they got for their useless liberal arts degree. Yay! Freedom! You know, in, in, in a way that only they can, the Babylon Bee recently posted a satirical article that really illustrates this dynamic, kind of the irony of it. The, the article was titled, Woman Escapes the Patriarchy, to find freedom in grueling 80-hour work week. <laughs> let, me read you, uh, let me read you the article. Chicago, Illinois. According to sources, local business analyst 
Abby Stoughton has finally escaped the shackles of the patriarchy to find freedom and worth in, in an 80-hour work week, working for an overbearing boss. This is true happiness, Stoughton said, as she got through her fourth meeting of the day, discussing first quarter sales figures for Melacorp Corporation. Quote, my feminist ancestors fought so I could answer to 12 different middle managers and a thankless job before going home to an empty apartment and drinking wine. I have reached the pinnacle of womanhood. Stoughton has said that while she has to deal with and unreasonable demands from male co-workers and sometimes even sexual assault, at least she doesn't have to live a boring life of homemaking with a husband and kids. Quote, I don't want all that domestic suburban bliss because that's not feminist, she said aloud as she daydreamed about being barefoot in the kitchen with a rich lumberjack husband. Quote, now if you'll excuse me, I have to redo cover sheets on these TPS reports before my boss threatens to fire me again. Are any of us really free? Verse 14, Jesus now kind of provides the real indictment of Babylon, this economic system. Again, verse 14, he says, The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you. And all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you. And you shall find them no more at all. As I mentioned earlier, moral Babylon is the foundation upon which the city of Babylon is based. And because this is the case, it's worth pointing out that there is a, a lie at the heart of all of it. Instead of finding one's satisfaction and meaning and purpose and this restored relationship with your Creator, Babylon sweeps in and points to a different idea. It points to a world that man creates for himself as really being the ultimate source of his fulfillment and lasting satisfaction. And yet sadly, what Babylon promises to provide, it can never make good on. It's a lie. For example, if pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure, hedonism, is the fruit that your soul longs for. Let me ask you this morning, have you ever had like a physical experience, a euphoria, that didn't leave you longing to have that experience again? Like, like have you ever had a sexual encounter that was so awesome and incredible, your reaction following it was, I'm good. I never need to have a physical reaction like that again. No, no, no. It feeds. You want more. You want it again. You want it better. Has anyone ever gone to a party and following the party thought to themselves, I never have to party again. That was the best party I've ever been, been to. We're good. No. It feeds. It feeds. If money is the fruit that your soul longs for, wealth, money, things, materialism. Like, have you ever reached a bank balance that you decided was just enough? I'm good. I've got all that I need. No, if that's the pursuit, it only gets you to pursue it more. John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest people to have ever lived, Standard Oil, 
was worth about $300 billion in today's market, was asked by a journalist, how much more is enough? His reply, one more dollar. You know, if, if notoriety or accolades, fame, status, is the fruit that your soul longs for, like, have you ever reached a, a, a moment of fame, of, of attention that you were finally content with? Like, if you're being honest with yourself this morning, the answer to all of these questions is no. It's no. You see, the honest anthem of Babylon was sung years ago by Mick, that no matter what I try, I can't get no satisfaction and what this world has to offer. Verse 15, the merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great riches came to nothing. <laughs> King Solomon actually writes about similar pursuits, and he describes these type of things. Life under the sun, the pursuit of meaning under the sun as being vanity of vanity, says the preachers. It's, it's vapor. It's worthless. Continuing, we're told that every shipmaster, all who traveled by ships and sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what is like this great city? And this is a good moment to just kind of point out where I think this is all figurative language because Babylon is many, many, many miles from the sea. This is, it was not a port city. Verse 19, we're told, they threw dust on their heads and they cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city, in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. Now verse 20 adds kind of an exhortation to all of the followers of Jesus, in light of this judgment, kind of the, the exhortation of heaven, the saints are told to rejoice over her, O heaven. And you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. You know, in the end, we're instructed not to rejoice because so many people were hurt in the fall of Babylon, but we're to rejoice because this ends up being the just and righteous resolution to all of these things that began following the fall of man. Verse 21, John says, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone. This is a massive boulder. And he threw it into the sea and said, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. And the seventh bold judgment Recorded in the final few verses of Revelation 16, John notes how, as a result of this massive earthquake, an earthquake that has never happened uh, since the, the beginning of man, that what results is that all of the cities of the earth, we're told, fell. Or they were destroyed. It appears that this event and what we have recorded in these verses are probably the same occurrence. With violence, we're told, the great city Babylon shall be thrown down, shall be wiped from the earth. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 6 and 7, Jesus, he establishes a, a really interesting principle that's relevant to these matters, these things, when he cautions that whoever causes one of these little ones, so he's speaking of the children, 
who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Again, similar imagery we find here. Jesus then says, Woe to the world, Babylon, because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offenses do come. You see, all sin will be judged in the end. But there seems to be a greater judgment, a more severe consequence for the person or the system that facilitates or leads other people into sin and rebellion. The mighty angel observes, verse 22, that the sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you, speaking of the city of Babylon, anymore, like on account of God's judgment, entertainment, amusement, ceases. No craftsman or or any craft shall be found in you anymore. Human work comes to an end, and the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. Industry will be brought to a close. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. The light goes out, and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride won't be heard in you anymore. All the normal social uh, procedures end. Why? For your merchants were the great men of the earth, And by your sorcery, all the nations were deceived. In the Greek, the word sorcery, it's pharmakia. It's from the word that we get the English word, pharmacy. It means to dispense of drugs. The world was was doped up on what Babylon was peddling. Chapter closes, and in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. As I explained in our introduction, all societies are built upon moral systems. From the moment of man's original rebellion, it has always been the spirit of Babylon, a moral system antithetical to God that has laid the foundation upon which man has built this unholy city represented by Babylon. A man-centric, man-exalting society that's void of the influence of God. Not only does the story conclude with God now bringing an end once and for all to man's reign by destroying Babylon and removing Babylon the great from the earth, but we'll see next Sunday that something amazing happens. Yes, one system is removed, but she's replaced. You see, in chapter 19, Jesus will return to this earth and He will institute a new society based upon an entirely different ethic. It will be the spirit of truth that lays the foundation for the kingdom of God. In closing, I want to return to what Jesus said in verse 4. I said we'd get back to it. Knowing that the judgment of Babylon was forthcoming, Jesus, he declares, and John overhears him say, he, he says, come out of her, my people lest you share in her sins, lest you receive her plagues. While there is, without a doubt, an application within this command for tribulational saints, I want to extrapolate from this, though, an important lesson for you and me. Even in America, we are presently living in a society founded upon Babylon the mother of harlots. And whether it be an economic structure based 
upon capitalistic principles or one that becomes more socialistic in nature. Never forget one important truth. Neither socialism or capitalism is God's ideal system for man. They are both fallen systems created, envisioned, imagined by sinful men in an attempt to build for himself his own utopia. Now, For starters, when Jesus says, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, Jesus is not endorsing kind of an Amish approach by which Christians seek to remove ourselves entirely from the world. Instead, what Jesus is encouraging is this foundational idea of being in the world, but not being of the world. From the macro perspective, Jesus, here he's speaking of matters of the heart. You know, those who are ultimately caught up in the sin of of Babylon and the plagues, the judgment of Babylon, these were folks who had placed their security into material things and sought to be fulfilled by the temporal. Following such a, a swift and dramatic judgment, this was obviously foolish. This is what Jesus is encouraging you and me to be cautious of. Instead of Babylon, which is where we live, the people of God need to continually keep our eyes to heaven and as such, our earthly wealth and context. We're in Babylon, but we're not to be of Babylon. In a sermon in which Jesus discusses the ethics upon which he will build his kingdom, Jesus would say to his followers in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Why? For where your treasure is, Jesus says, there your heart will be also. Aside from the obvious implications of wealth and how the way in which we use these things reveals a lot about a person's heart. Again, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's another really significant component, an aspect, a point about money that Jesus is making here in these verses that has an application to Babylon and Revelation 18, but it's rarely discussed. While the principle can apply to other things, like our time and our energy and our friends and whatnot, within the specific context of what, of what Jesus is talking concerning our financial resources, what we do with our finances, he cautions here against using these things to accumulate treasure on earth, or treasure in Babylon, pointing out the obvious and tenuous temporal nature. And doing that. Like, don't store up for yourself treasure in Babylon, treasure on earth. Why? Well, they can be destroyed, ultimately judged, but they can be destroyed by natural things like moth, moths and rust, and are even vulnerable to thieves breaking in and stealing them. In contrast, because of its eternal security and its therefore natural longevity, Jesus encourages his followers to use our financial uh, resources, our earthly finances, 
Not to store up treasure on earth, but what? To lay up treasures in heaven. That's a fascinating idea. Jesus is literally saying that we need to place our treasures on layaway for a future enjoyment. Which means we can. Like, think about that for a moment. The implication of what Jesus is saying here is that it's actually entirely possible for you to spend your money in such a way that it incurs value and reward in heaven. That's amazing. You know, in the end, money. Money is nothing more than, than an amoral tool that can be used to accomplish incredible good. The saving of souls, the continuation and spread of, of ministry, and the Word of God. Like your money and your hands can be used to do wonderful good that in turn yields spiritual rewards that you'll be allowed to enjoy in heaven for all of eternity. That's amazing. You can take your money and do things in Babylon that store up treasure in heaven you can enjoy forever. Or... <laughs> You can waste your money on earthly things that will be destroyed and that carry with them no type of lasting legacy. You can store up, you can use your money to store up investments on earth, and we've seen what happens with those. Or you can use your money to make investments into heaven, treasure in heaven. Amazing. Yeah, in the context of what will come to Babylon, I close by just advising, you know, it's probably wise to invest your money in a coming kingdom versus the fallen city. So, Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word, all that it says to us. In Jesus' name.